I wanted to say from where I was sitting, Denny opened things tonight, that on behalf of all of the visitors that are here, it's good to see our Bear Valley, Bear Valley family too. You might be glad to see us, and you might be thankful that we're here, but we're thankful you're doing this. We're thankful that you've given us an invitation to be a part of it. Um, I could spend my 40 minutes tonight telling you how much this place means to me and how much Michael Hyatt means to me. But we're not here about me, and we're not here about Michael. We're here about our risen Savior, the responsibility that we have to handle his word, to understand its power, to apply that to our lives. And I'm honored to stand before you and with you to be able to uphold that word this evening. There are some calculations that are too lofty for my mind to compute. In fact, just the thought of those things makes my mind go numb. For example, if I were to try to count up the gallons of water in the ocean one by one, the distance that is measured in light years, the actual length of DNA code inside one human being, which I'm told would stretch from one end of our solar system and then back again. I don't even want to think. I don't want to spend time, and I don't want to dwell on those astronomical numbers and depths. There are some other calculations, however, that are just as mind-boggling. They don't make me go numb. They make my heart full. When I try to think about and to measure the depths of the love of God, the number of sins that the blood of Christ has covered since the time of the cross, the count of every single blessing that has been bestowed upon every single person who's ever walked the face of this earth. I can't, and you can't even begin to put a number to that. But considering that makes our hearts full and should make our voices ring. But maybe the most indescribable number, the most indescribable measure, the most incomprehensible thought is to measure and to grasp the power of the Almighty God. To be able to put in terms, in, into a sermon tonight, in, into a series of lessons over the course of one weekend, and, and to truly believe we've done any justice to how great and powerful and wonderful and majestic our God is. His power is so rich that on every page of Scripture and every scene that flashes before us in life, we are reminded of how great He is. Look at the mountains and the oceans and the animal kingdom. Look at man and at woman, at the solar system, at the planets, at the stars. He thunders, friends, in every storm. He speaks in every sunset. And He orders the change of every season. And then, and then He really shows up. Beyond all of those things, He's in the floodwaters of Genesis, in the quaking mountain of Exodus, in the sun that stood still in Joshua, in every single deliverance in the judges. He's in the recesses of caves, the den of lions, the Mount of Carmel, under a juniper tree and by the river Kibar. He's in Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and the palace of Artaxerxes. The power of God was displayed in a manger scene of the New Testament. It's set at the home of lepers at weddings in Cana and washed feet in the upper room. And ultimately, the power of God rested on an ordinary, 
probably considered to be worthless cross outside the city of Jerusalem on a random day in history. And on that cross, with a piercing scream, agonizing breath, and selfless love, the power of God was made known to every man and every woman. If you really want to know the power of God tonight, I would encourage you to turn and look at the person sitting next to you. That person was once lost. That person was once outside of Christ with reputation and baggage and sins that, again, we would not want to compute. We would not want to add up. But in the majestic power of the Almighty God, He said, I will redeem you. I will buy you back. I will make you something. And I will give you a place among my people. Friends, we sit here tonight as evidence of the matchless, awesome, incomprehensible power of God. And yet we are called tonight to grasp that concept, to put it in our hearts, to be able to live it, to share it. You know, there was a conversation that Jesus had in the last week of his life before his crucifixion, in some of those exchange moments with the religious leaders of his day. In this particular occasion, he was discussing with the Sadducees about the resurrection. And as they asked their questions, knowing their motives and their purpose and what they didn't even believe about the questions they were asking, Jesus said to them, you don't understand God or his power. You're without understanding about that. Can you imagine living in a world where the mountains were were existent, where the seasons changed, where, where the oceans were full, where blessings rained down? To be a person who lived ignorant of the power and majesty of God. You may say, why is, why is it so important? Is it just because it's part of the lectureship theme? Is it, is it just because we can reference in Scripture? What's, what's the, the, the need for us to truly be able to wrap our minds around the infinite power of God? There may be many of those reasons. I'll just share this one by way of introduction. I'm convinced that every sin that's committed, every angry outburst, every broken relationship that's not fixed, every false doctrine and false teaching and believing of that, every false religion that crops up in this world is a result of either dismissing or not understanding the power of God. Because, friends, we've been told that we will stand before Him in judgment, that we will give an account for the things that we have done in this body, and yet sometimes we still choose to do those things that we know that are wrong, sort of mortgaging our future and our eternity on maybe God is not as powerful as He says He is. Maybe He won't rain down judgment on us as we blatantly disobey Him. But, friends, we know the difference, don't we? We know the truth. And so it is incumbent upon us that we learn and understand the power of God. And so God has given testimony in his book, actually in a library of books, 66 of them to be exact, where on every page he auditions, he shares his resume, he gives his his attributes that we might be impressed at the page, at every page in its turn, That our God is mighty and powerful. Now, the lectureship this particular weekend is the culmination of now what is three years in the making to get through the book of 1 Corinthians. And there's no doubt that the book of 1 Corinthians is about the power of God and the need for men to grasp that power. It opens with that concept that the power of God is the message of the cross. And it will ultimately be seen in the resurrection of all men at the end of time 
But looking at the layout of the lectureship and the various topics that are going to be discussed and the assignments that are being given, I felt it impossible to, to dive into one of those texts about the power of God and not step all over someone else's lesson somewhere down the line. I know that many of those men may not be in, in town tonight. Maybe you wouldn't tell them that I did that to their lesson, but I don't want to do that anyway. So what I want us to do tonight is I want us to go for the setting to an Old Testament story. And I want to bring that story into a New Testament application for us today in the time that we have left here tonight. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 6 with me. 1 Samuel chapter 6. I believe we see here not, not one of the more notable examples, not one of the more memorable occasions where the power of God was on display, but also one of those occasions where men on both sides of the exchange miscalculated how powerful God really was. In order for us to consider this text tonight and consider what's found in it, and we're going to do it in short order because of what we want to do toward the end, we need to remember a few things by, by way of setting. Okay? Number one, we need to understand where Israel is in its journey in, in 1 Samuel 6. By this point in Israel's history, they have scored two major victories by the power and hand of God. They have been delivered out of Egyptian bondage, and, and, Israelite, or, and, and Pharaoh and his armies defeated in, in the, the Red Sea. Then they had entered into the promised land and had gained the promised land that God had said. They should have been living as a victorious people at this point in time. As a people trusting in and grasping in fullness the power of God. But you see there's a book, isn't there, between what happens in Joshua and what happens in 1 Samuel? In fact, the, 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 the content of 1 Samuel 6 is actually still during the time of that book, the time of the Judges. The judges were still ruling in Israel, and we know what that time was noted for, a time when every man did that which was right in his own eyes, went his own way. Listen, you, you can't define any better the idea of living outside the scope of God's power without understanding his, his majesty than to live with, with what's right in your own eyes. Do your own thing. That's how they were living at this time. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Israel miscalculated God's power in this chapter. There's also someone else we need to consider, and that's the Philistines. They are the, the, the key player in the other side of the equation here in 1 Samuel chapter 6. In fact, I believe they've taken Egypt's place as enemy number one for God's people. They were a, a, they, their hand was in a number of the oppressions in the book of Judges. They were, they were part of those nations that had not fully been driven out, and God was using those nations to chastise His people and to bring them back and to even burden them when they had gone fully away from Him. They, they were the new Egypt. And the wars that would be fought, you, can, you could trace them even through this book. Probably the most famous of those wars culminates in, in chapter 17 in the fight between David and Goliath. But you know, many of the fights between the Philistines and the Israelites were not merely warrior against warrior, but in their minds, God against God. Philosophy against philosophy. Who's more powerful? When, when Goliath is described in, in 1 Samuel 17, he's described as one who was defying the armies of the living God. That's how it's described. He wasn't just defying a group of people occupying a land who had escaped from Egypt. He was defying the God that led them. And here in this chapter, you have a, another standoff between the God of Israel, Jehovah, and the gods supposedly of the Philistines. A, a third consideration that needs to be made in 1 Samuel chapter 6 is the role of the Ark of the Covenant in the life of Israel. It was told to them to make and to construct during their time of the Exodus, and they would carry it with them. It would go forth before them. It was a representation of God. If Israel had been a pagan nation, 
the Ark of the Covenant would have been their chief idol. It would have been the thing that they worshipped. It would have been the thing that they bowed down to. And there were some occasions, even previous to 1 Samuel 6, they had actually turned it into that. It had become their idol. It had become their god to them. The Ark's place in their life and in, their, in, in their, the scheme of, uh, of their history plays an important role in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And then the context of chapter 6. Chapter 6 doesn't happen in a vacuum, obviously. We're not reading the Psalms. We're not in Proverbs. There's not a standalone chapter here that's disconnected somewhat from everything else and doesn't fit in the narrative. Actually, chapter 6 fits in chapters 4 through 7 in the arc narratives of 1 Samuel. And those, that, those chapters open with a battle against the Philistines that the Israelites lose. And chapter 7 closes with a battle against the Philistines that the Israelites win. So ultimately the good guys win and God is vindicated and, and God's people are, are free then to ask in chapter 8 for a kingdom to rule over them and, disreject, and, and reject God altogether. But our chapter comes in the, in the middle of that. It comes in, 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 in context. Now what's happened is they've taken the battle to fight. They lose the battle. They don't, or they've taken the ark to fight. They don't just lose the battle. You know they lose the ark as well. And for seven months, when chapter 6 opens... The Bible says that the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines. That's a sad statement and sad commentary on Israel's history. The very thing which represented their God in their midst that would sit and, and be the place where the mercy seat would be and where God would meet with his people, that thing rested in the hands was occupied by the forces of a pagan nation. Now what's interesting in chapter 5 and maybe some of the more humorous Stories in all the Old Testament happens when they took that ark and put it in their storehouse. See, the Philistines believed if they had the ark, guess what? They had God. They had Jehovah. The, the, the Israelites were, were, were done forever now because their chief idol, their chief object, that which represented their God, now they have it. And so as a trophy, they moved it into the house of their God, Dagon. Remember what happened overnight when they came back? They walked in and the, the Dagon was bowing flat on his face before the ark. So they set him back up, and they go, and they come back again. And this time, his hands are cut off, and his head's cut off, and he's gone again. And they decide, we're going to send the ark back. It's almost like a Christmas present you didn't want. <laughs> or a tool you borrowed from someone next door. Let's send it home. This prized possession, let's get rid of it. That, that's the backdrop to what happens in chapter 6. Now, friends, understand that to this point... Both Israel and the Philistines had disrespected the power of God. They failed to grasp it. Israel believed that it, as preachers of old used to say, could be contained in a box. They put their God in a box. Philistines believed that they could defeat him. Both of them were wrong. And in chapter 6, they both learned their lesson. So in chapter 6, they send the ark home. And it's in the sending of the ark home that I want us to think of, of three things that will help us appreciate and grasp the power of God like it did for them. We're going to do this in short order, and we're going to take, we're going to take an now spoiler alert, we're going to take the middle of those and make it our primary point of application tonight in our message. Number one, in order to grasp the power of God, they had to understand the past properly. Now, what we get in chapter 6, verses 3 through 6 specifically, is a conversation that takes place among the Philistines. All right, verse 2 says, They called for their priests and their diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark? Tell us how we can send it back to its place. 
I want you to notice verse 3. Maybe one of the most interesting passages in all of 1 Samuel. They said, if you send away the ark of God to Israel, do not send it empty. But you shall surely return it to him with a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Now, it might be subtle, friends, but there are no less than three references to the Exodus in that one verse. Send it back. You know that same word is used when Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go? Same word, same idea. Send it away, send it back. Then he says, don't send it empty-handed. Remember when Israel left, did they leave empty-handed? No, they plundered the Egyptians. They took their things with them. And what happened when they got far enough out of, out of sight, when they made it to Mount Sinai, what did God do in, in chapter 20 but reveal himself to them? He made himself known. Send it away. Don't send it empty-handed. And when you do send it away, you'll know their God better. You may think, well, Wayne, you're stretching it. You're just looking for a connection. You're just trying to work the Exodus narrative into the Ark narrative. Drop down to verse 5, or verse 6, rather. These are the Philistines talking to each other again. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh harden their hearts? Send it away. Why are you doing what Egypt did? Listen, I'm not putting the Egyptian language in it. They're putting the Egyptian language in it. That's how they see this playing out. Because not only did Dagon fall, but they were struck with tumors. You think they had a, a recollection back to the stories they had heard about the plagues that took place in Egypt before God's people were let go? They understood the past, and as they began to understand the past, the power of God became more real to them. They didn't want anything to do with this God because now they had linked what was going on today with what had gone on in the past. Friends, as we begin our lesson tonight, all those things that we mentioned and all those places where God's power is seen in Scripture, that's a rehearsing of the past, and we need that in our churches. Listen, the story of Noah and the story of Abraham, the story of Moses, they're not just stories for our Bible classes and our three- and four-year-olds and, and, and our junior high. They need to be front and center in our churches. We need to talk about them from our pulpits. Friends, that's our story. Amen. That's who we are, saved and delivered by the power of God. And the better we understand the past, the more we're able to grasp the power of God today. The second thing they did, as seen in this text, is they, they looked at the present honestly. They looked at the present honestly and were able then to grasp the power of God. Listen, if verse 3 is one of the more interesting verses Verses 7 through 12, they rival it. They're right up there. Have you ever read what they did to send the ark home? Say what we'll do. We'll take, we'll take a new cart. We'll take two cows. We'll throw the ark up on that cart. We'll hitch those cows to it, and we'll send them on their way. Friends, this is almost as humanly illogical as marching around the walls of Jericho so they'll fall down. Have you ever worked with cattle? Anybody here tonight ever worked with cattle? Find it difficult to move them around? Did you ever just hitch them to a cart and say, hey, go take this home? Go, go take it to the barn? That's how they did this. The Bible says that they, they hooked those, those, those cows there, they put it on the cart, and they sent it back, and then they made this agreement. If it goes by the way of Israel, we'll know that their God had a hand in what was going on in our past, and the things recently around here. And if not, we'll know it's by chance. 
Listen, I, I'm convinced that at this point in the story, the Philistines have showed more faith than Israel showed. They just believed God would take care of it. The Jehovah was that powerful. They understood their present. That God was active. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But number three, as the story comes to a conclusion, verses 13 through 18 in particular, they made preparation for the future. And it revealed what they had begun to learn about the power of God. So between verses 12 and 13, the point of view shifts. If you'll think about it this way, for the first 12 verses, you have everything from the vantage point of the Philistines, and, and you have the ark moving away from them. But in verse 13, the story flips around, and now we get the vantage point of the Israelites. And the Bible says that they looked up and they saw the ark coming back. I don't know what they thought. But I know this, they saw two cows in a cart and nobody leading it. But they heard lowing. You know what that was indicative of? Somebody driving the cow. The cow was responding to the one who was driving them. Who was driving the cow? It was God. He orchestrated this. It went the only way it could have gone to validate to the Philistines God's power. And it came home. What I want you to see, though, is when it got home, they, they took the trinkets that were in the box next to the ark, those, those statues that represented the, the five major Philistine cities, and they, they took them to a field, and they set up a stone there, and they called that field Joshua and that stone witness. Do you know why? Do you know why they would have done that? They did that because subsequent generations were going to come by and want to know what that field was all about. Isn't that the way it played out in the Old Testament? When your children ask you what's the purpose of this, you can spend that moment and that time and rehearse this story. I wonder how many times beside that rock in the field of Joshua did a father tell his son about the two milk cows and the new cart and the Ark of the Covenant just coming over the hill. Nobody brought it back to us except for God. When the, when the, when the Ark left, you remember what they said? Ichabod. The glory has departed. I'm convinced when they saw the ark coming over back over the top of the hill, they thought the glory of God has returned, and they wanted to tell their children about it. They learned then, friends, to put some emphasis on the future. I want to be honest with you tonight. I believe we do a pretty good job of the first and the third one. Maybe not as good as we could. Maybe we should be more diligent to do better. But I believe for those of us gathered here tonight that we have, we have a grasp on the past power of God. We've all preached sermons on the Exodus and on the giving of the law and on Daniel and the lion's den and the rescue of the prophets. We, we know those stories. We rehearse them. We, we share them. We, we, we plan entire week, weeks of EBS around one, one nuance of those stories. And we decorate our church buildings all up. We've got the past power of God down pretty well. And we spend a lot of time thinking about the future power of God, don't we? About resurrection, about judgment, about restoration. And those, those songs and those ideas, they, they warm our hearts. And we tell them to our children, and we want our children to want to go to heaven. How much time, friends, do we spend talking about the present power of God in the lives of his people even today? I'm not going to suggest to you that we fail in any of these. But if we need more work, I'm convinced, maybe for me, if for no one else in the room, it needs to be more on the middle one. What does it mean 
to trust in the power of God today. Now, before we do that, we want to narrow our focus a little more. Because it would be very easy for me to stand up here tonight and tell you that there are a world of people out there who do not grasp the power of God. In fact, they don't even believe that He exists. They believe in, in theories such as the Big Bang and evolution. They deny the, 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 the evidences and the power of God that's right before them. And we could rail on those people and their beliefs and say, aren't we glad that we grasp the power and they don't? Now, if you're here tonight and you have doubts about whether or not God exists, hope you'll stay around long enough and study that with us and allow us to show you evidence. But I believe that most of us have that settled in our minds. And so to spend the next 10 or 15 minutes telling us that we ought to believe that God exists would almost be pointless because we believe it, right? Amen. Okay, so could say then that we should, we should emphasize the power of God because there are those in our world today who ascribe their, their, their teaching and their salvation to some other being other than Jesus Christ, whether it's Buddha or Muhammad. And we do have a world, a growing world of people, don't we? that are buying into to mystic religions or, or Islamic religion or, 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 or a combination of a number of different things. And truly, those who reject Christ as the Son of God are rejecting a primary part of God's power, no doubt. But again, I, I'm not sure that describes the lot of us that are here this evening. We believe in Jesus, don't we? We believe that He is the Son of God, that He came with power, that He established a church, that He sits and reigns now, He'll come back and deliver the kingdom of the Father. We believe all of that. So I'm not sure that our time would be well spent rehearsing that in a group of people who already believe it. Okay, so we could turn our attention tonight as we apply the power of God in present day to the denominational world. Have a lot of folks that do not let the Bible be their final guide outside the church who do not ascribe to, to what it says, who've built their own religion and their own church and by their own power. It even bears their name. They have their following. But again, I'm not sure that's who we are. So how is it that we might be guilty tonight of dismissing or minimizing or forgetting the power of God in the present day? How do we as preachers of the gospel, as those who train preachers of the gospel, as those who support the training of preachers of the gospel, how is it that we fail to grasp the power of God in present day? I'll suggest two things to you tonight, and less will be yours. Number one, we can dismiss the power of God in our individual lives and collectively as a church when we have a self-inflated view of our place in the scheme of it all. When we have a self-inflated view of our place in the scheme of it all, we have dismissed the true matchless power of God. I am amazed, friends, at the fact that someone takes pride, and I mean by that sinful pride and arrogance, exalting themselves for their position in an organization or a body or an organism that they only belong to because once they were destitute and without. And they only got into there because God was gracious enough to put them there. That somehow we have arrived because God decided to forgive us of our sins. And someone was gracious enough to tell us about Christ. We have a lot of folks in the Lord's church that have built their own kingdoms, haven't they? And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, that's why we might preach. And that's why we might teach. So we'll have 
a name and a place and following and inflate our view of self in all of this. Listen, as God was being introduced to those in Athens, not, not, not after they had known him and served him and maybe gotten off course, as he was being introduced, Paul said he was a God, chapter 17, verses 24 and 25 of Acts, that does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Friends, before there was a universe over which God was creator, before there was an angelic host to sing his praises, before there was a man and woman that walked on the earth to mirror his image to the world, before there was a reason to shower down blessings and receive back praise, our God was already all-powerful and all-majestic, all-loving and all-knowing. Our service to him does not make him more worthy of that. It doesn't add to God's power. It doesn't add to God's stature. It might help the world know it better, and we should take our role in that. But if we cease to be today, our God would still exist, and he would still be powerful. Amen. One writer said, God's power is like himself, self-existent, self-sustained. The mightiest of men cannot add as much as a shadow of increased power to the all-powerful one. He sits on a butcher's throne and leans on no assisting arm. His court is not manipulated by its couriers, nor does his, he borrow its splendor from his creatures. He is himself the great central source and originator of all power. And we need to remember that as we move through this life, as we mount pulpits and write bulletin articles and go house to house and door to door. And we can travel thousands of miles and write hundreds of books. And our God is no more God after all of that than he was before. But if we, if we accept exalt our place in the scheme of things we deny his power listen i was crushed last year when the bear valley lectureship was canceled actually when denny sent the letter that said we're still gonna have the lectureship but you don't have to write a manuscript i was actually happy about that step of the process the only step of the process i actually got away with one of them anyway but i in one step of the process i was happy but i was crushed like you i need this it's important for me. It's a lifeline to my faith and to my strength and to my fellowship. We had to cancel Focal Point that same year, which is the highlight of my entire year. But I'll tell you what, those cancellations didn't change the power of Almighty God. And when the church stopped meeting in buildings like this and they sat empty and the church began to meet individually in homes and with families... Our God's praise was still sung, and his name was still great, and he was still majestic and powerful because it doesn't depend on who we are or even where we are for him to be who he is. And if this year has taught us anything, I believe it's taught us that. The truth of the matter is that if the cycle of life stays the way that it is, Bear Valley won't always train gospel preachers. But preachers will be made. And focal point won't always encourage men already in the ministry, but someone will. Because our God reigns and He is powerful. We sing a song sometimes, and I understand the, the logistics behind it, I understand the meaning and purpose, and I sing it without reservation, but it's not an absolute truth. It's a song that goes something like this He has no hands but our hands, He has no feet but our feet. Because that's not exactly true. 
Because if we stopped working, God would still be powerful and he would still work. He is ever-present in our world. And sometimes it takes us seeing the ark coming over the top of the hill that we had nothing to do with and nothing to plan for and nothing to aim at to remind us that we're not in charge of all of this. And so we could self-inflate our worth in the scheme of it all and thus dismiss the power of God. Number two, we can miss the power of God in present day as, as faithful Christians when we fail to loosen our grip on other things. When we're trying to grasp one thing and the power of God with the other hand. Namely, our pleasures and our fears. Friends, they're not compatible with grasping the power of God. Not fully. You ever seen a, a movie or a television show that gets to that, that, that moment of, uh, of pivot, that, 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 that climax where there's someone hanging from a tall building or, or they're hanging from a, a rock ledge and the rescues come and the hand is reaching down and the only way for them to grasp that hand, the hand that will sustain them, is to let go of what they're already holding on to. They can't have both. And the longer they hold on to the side of that building, the longer they hold on to the side of that ledge, the, the, the more in danger they are falling to their death. But it takes courage and faith to let go of one and reach out to the other, but you can't have them both at that time. Because I believe we are put in a lot of those positions in life. And what we try to do for our own safe and security is hold on to that ledge and reach out for God. And it just doesn't work like that. If anybody in this world is going to live on faith. It ought to be the people gathered in this room tonight. It ought to be us. In fact, if we can't live on faith, if we can't decide on faith, if we can't let go of the things that are, that are preoccupying our time and our hearts and our minds over God, what do we expect of those who perhaps haven't studied as many years as we've studied or been as many places as we've been, given the opportunities we've been given? But I think sometimes as preachers, we can be very condescending in a pulpit about what we expect for those that are listening to us. Let go of the world. Let go of your fears. Live by faith. And then you watch that preacher's life and that preacher's habits and that preacher's prayers. And it reflects very much what is the norm in the world, not just in the church, but in the world, about what makes him happy and about what makes him scared. Friends, our pleasures and our fears ought to be different than the pleasures and fears of the world. Piper said, the greatest enemy of our hunger for God is not a poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked but the, that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated movie, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keep, uh, keeps us from the banquet table of his love, he describes a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not the enemy, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the pleasures of this world. And friends, we can't have a handle on both and fully grasp the power of the Almighty God. We don't have to let go of our pleasures. We have to let go of our fears. See, I may have to let go of that, that secret indulgence. I may have to let go of that, that, that crutch that, that, that holds me up, that lust that controls my heart. But I also may have to let go of that unsettled fear that rests in my mind. I really think that something needs to be said in our churches. And that is that this virus is not going to end the world. God's going to do that. It's not going to happen because of a pandemic or a sickness or a fever 
Now, it, it may crash our economy. It's taken loved ones from us. And it puts us on a different level of, 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 of watchfulness as it pertains to physical health. But it will not end our, or this, our existence in Christ or the power of God in general. It may cause us to bite and devour one another over political lines. It might cause us to push our preference above that of our brethren. But who was in power before this crisis? Friends, who will be in power after this crisis? And guess what? He rests supreme even tonight in the midst of every uncertain turn that we've taken in the last 18 months. And thanks be to God for the one who doesn't change. When, when would we have altered our course in dealing with mankind? When would we have changed, gone back on and forgotten about what we told him we would do? Would it have been at the fall? Would it have been at the flood? Would it have been at the exodus or post-exodus in the time of the wandering, or of the judges or of the kings or of the silent years or the first century and they rejected his son? I'm convinced if we had made it all the way through keeping our promise to man, maybe we would have found something in the last two years to have walked away from man for. for. Of all that God has done for us, of all that he's given us, of all that he's promised us, for us to live as if he's st still not in control is to miss the power of God far more than Israel or the Philistines ever thought about. But we have a God that doesn't change. Praise be to him this evening.